Amen. Would you turn with me to the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4. If you're a parent, by the way, this is a great time to teach your kids how to find passages in the Bible. I just got done teaching our Discover Grace for Kids class and was just reminded like, oh, that skill doesn't come naturally. You actually have to teach that. Uh, so, right, First Peter is towards the end of the Bible. Maybe you locate that with the table of contents. Uh, and then when you get into uh, the letter of First Peter, right, you look for the big number four. That's the chapter. And then the, the verse would be the small numbers, and that would be verse number 12. That's where we're going to start today. Peter is beginning to close out his letter. We've been here now for the entire spring and into the summer, and I guess this is really just the beginning of summer. And we're not quite finished yet. I'll finish First uh, Peter up when, uh, when I come back from sabbatical. But uh, for right now, First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Let's give our attention to God's word. Peter writes, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is saved with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fade. But the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask for his help. Our God and King, would you teach us? Teach us how to live as your people with great hope. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I mentioned last week that uh, I get a weekly email from a group called Voice of the Martyrs, which um, highlights different persecuted people and groups around the globe. And uh, I wanted to read to you a couple of more stories from that because I think it captures uh, the situation that Peter is speaking to. The first one comes from Laos. After her husband died, Boon May felt cursed. Although she was an animist, an animist is someone who believes that there are spirits in every uh, person, object, tree, that, that the spiritual world is in everything, and everything is spiritual. Although she was an animist who believed in ancestral spirits, Bunmei turned to Christians she knew as a way to break the curse. After meeting a local pastor, she put her trust in Christ. Eventually, her brother-in-law, Riang, who was also a leader of her village, learned of Bunmei's Christian faith. He told her to choose, 
between God or her family, Boon May chose Jesus. Angered by her response, Ryang stole a portion of Boon May's land, claiming that her husband, before his death, had given him permission to farm it. Villagers have stopped talking to Boon May, further isolating her following her husband's death. Pray for Boon May to feel God's presence and be encouraged by his word. Pray also that she's able to find community with other believers who can help her grow in her faith. And then the next story comes from Iran. Last fall, three Christian workers were imprisoned after attending a house church. Though officials promised to reduce their sentences if they remained silent about their Christian faith, one of the prisoners is using this opportunity to share the gospel. Now I, under, now I understand why God let me be brought here to this prison, she said. My daughter has many people to care for her and teach her about the love of God. But in this prison, there are many young girls who have never even heard about God's love. They need me, and I need to be here for them. This sister has suffered solitary confinement several times because of her Christian witness, yet she continues to boldly share her faith. She says, please pray with me for many here inside these prison walls to come to faith and experience the true freedom only Christ can give. Peter is writing for people like that. But what about people like us? Most of us haven't faced anything like uh, what these two sisters are facing. And yet, I would say most of us face a variety of soft sufferings, if we could call it that. Uh, for example, I was talking with a, a sister this week who uh, has recently uh, begun following Jesus more and coming back to church. And she said that her family, who is not churched, responds with uh, ridicule and jokes and passive-aggressive statements. Uh, when I was in college and came to know Christ, uh, the girl that I was dating at the time, when I told her I became a Christian, she actually started to cry because she knew that that meant our relationship would have to change and eventually it would end. And so we face situations like that. Uh, we also see uh, increasingly, even in the United States, uh, cases like that of Jack Phillips, whom you may be familiar with his story. He was a Christian cake baker who refused to bake a cake for a same-sex couple for their wedding uh, and had to uh, close his business. John Stone Street with the Colson Center asked, do we have a theology of getting fired? That's the kind of persecution, the kind of suffering that even in America, right, even in America we see that following Christ can be costly. And so Peter writes for us as well. How do we live? That's really what Peter has been talking about this whole letter. How do we live in the face of hard and soft hostility, persecution, suffering for following Jesus? Uh, philosopher Alistair McIntyre writes this. I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I first answer the question, what story do I find myself a part of? I can only know what to do if I know what story I'm in. And that's what Peter's doing here. 
He's reminding us of the story that we're a part of so that we'll know what to do, so that we'll know how to play our part. Or you could summarize it this way. Hope of glory helps us face suffering with joy and perseverance. If we have a sure hope of glory, then it will enable us to live with joy and perseverance. That's what Peter is saying, and he does it a couple of ways. He provides some alternatives, right? First, he says, don't be surprised, but rejoice. And then he says, don't be ashamed, but glorify God. And then finally, he wraps it all up by saying, commit your life, commit all of life to God, to your faithful creator. And so let's break down each one of those. First, you see in verse 12 there, Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial as though something strange were happening to you. I came across an interesting quote uh, in a sermon I was reading a few weeks ago. Yes, I read other people's sermons. No, I try not to copy too much of them. The pastor said this. It is normal, not abnormal, for Christians to be hated. That may seem abnormal to us, but if you look at the course of Christian history and even the, the experience of the majority of Christians today, uh, we're the abnormal ones. It is normal for Christians to be hated. Jesus said the most sweeping thing in Matthew 24, 9. He said, you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. This pastor goes on. He says, there's a warning here for us in America. I get the impression that we are in a bitter, reactionary mood as Christians in America. The atmosphere seems to be one of acrimony. I had to look that up. It means bitterness. The atmosphere seems to be one of bitterness and rancor and mean-spiritedness in the public square. As if the liberal, humanistic, secular, relativistic, cultural elites have taken our Christian world from us. Would you say that's true? I would say that is certainly what I observe. Do you know when he said that? 1994. Almost 30 years ago. I was 14 years old. And yet, I don't know that much has changed. Why are we surprised? I'm not saying that nothing's wrong. I'm, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be disheartened. Or that we shouldn't be concerned. But I am saying we shouldn't be surprised. And I'm saying that because Peter says it. And because Jesus says it. Why are we surprised? As if something strange were happening to us. Is it, is it because we've put our hope in the wrong place? Is it because we think we should be living a different story? And therefore, our expectations aren't being met. And therefore, as he says, we're angry and mean-spirited. Peter says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. What does he mean by fiery trial? 
He doesn't mean, I don't think, at least not at this point in history, that, the, that Christians at this point were being burned alive. That would happen, but I don't think it happens at this point in history. No, he says it's a fiery trial that is among you to test you. Uh, Peter is using the imagery of how uh, silver and gold would be heated up by fire to remove their impurities. He's saying that God is using suffering, suffering for righteousness, to purify and test his people. So what their friends and neighbors intend for evil, God intends for good. He's using it to purify and test his people, which is what connects uh, later on in verse 17 when Peter's talking about judgment. Look at that verse. He says, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Now, let's pause for a second. I thought that if Christians, if somebody believed in Jesus, that they had escaped God's judgment, that we wouldn't be judged. Doesn't Paul say in Romans 8, 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Yes, that's true. But the word here for judgment is not condemnation. The word here for judgment is simply just the act of a judge. Right? So what, what does a judge do? He takes in the facts of the case and he sorts it out and he sifts it and then he issues a judgment. In fact, the word the judge simply means to decide. And so the judge issues a decision and it might be a good decision, one that's favorable to you. It may be one that you don't like. But that's what Peter is talking about here. It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey God's good news. Peter's borrowing imagery from the Old Testament prophets where God purifies his people through judgment. And when he says in verse 18, if the righteous is scarcely saved, uh, he's saying he's not saying that that Christians just barely slide in. The better translation would probably be saved with difficulty. He means that salvation is no cakewalk. In fact, we just sang it, right? Through thorny ways, he leads to a joyful end that God uses difficulty. God uses trial and suffering to purify us, to test us, to prove us. Paul, another leader in early Christianity, planted many churches. We see his story a lot in the book of Acts. He took the gospel message all over the Roman Empire and After he would plant churches, then he would go back through and encourage them. And here's how he encouraged some new believers uh, in Acts chapter 14, verse 22. Luke, who writes the book of Acts, tells us that, that Paul went through strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. So just kind of imagine for a second what Paul might be saying to these new Christians to encourage them to persevere in the faith. What do you imagine he said? This is what he said. And saying that through many tribulations, many troubles, we must enter the kingdom of God. How's that for a marketing campaign? That doesn't, that doesn't look very good on a, uh, on, a, on a billboard, does it? But maybe again we've forgotten our story. We're surprised when we shouldn't be. And so what Peter is saying back in our passage is if that's the effect on those who belong to Christ, 
What will the effect of God's judgment be on those who are outside of Christ? God has begun his judgment, his separation, his decision-making. And instead of, uh, and so for us that means trial, uh, but it's a trial to test. So instead of surprise, Peter says, we should rejoice. Look at verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Now, is, is Peter mental? See, have a problem. Is he saying that, uh, that we should derive joy or pleasure from pain? Is that what he's after? No, look at, look at what he says. Rejoice insofar or to the degree that you share Christ's sufferings. Why? So that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. He's saying... If you suffer with Christ now, you will experience his glory later. And that is cause for rejoicing. Experience suffering now. Receive glory later. It means we can rejoice when we suffer for Christ because we know that it's going somewhere. We have hope that it won't always be this way. Think about that woman in the Iranian prison. She knows she won't always be in prison. She knows that one day the pain and shame of shackles will be replaced with the ultimate freedom and joy of Jesus. She's going to see him face to face. And she will hear, well done, daughter. Well done, good and faithful servant. Hope changes everything. She knows the truth of what we sang earlier. O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain. That morn will tearless be. Don't be surprised, but rejoice. Rejoice in the hope of glory. Kevin, that sounds great. Future hope, glory, got it. But what about right now? What about today? What about this week? How am I supposed to live in the, in the future hope of glory today? Peter says, don't be ashamed. Look at uh, verse 14. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ... You are blessed. And remember, we talked about that word a few weeks ago. Peter's already said something like this. What does it mean to be blessed? It means that God's favor rests upon you. Now, it's easy to believe that when things are going well. But when we are insulted for the name of Christ, we feel probably a little less than blessed. We feel cursed. In fact, that's what... Curse means, right? It's the opposite of blessed. And so Peter wants us to remember, when you're insulted, remember you're, you're not cursed, you're blessed. God is not absent in suffering. He has not cast you off. He has not turned his back on you. In fact, Peter says, you have his Holy Spirit of glory 
resting on you in that moment. That's why you are blessed. You have God's spirit of blessing resting on you. Now, look, at, look down at verse 16. He says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Now, remember that shame-honor dynamic that we've been talking about through this whole letter. It's a big deal in the first century. That if you wanted to lower someone's status, if you, you wanted to shame them, right? You wanted to knock somebody down a few pegs, you would shame them, right? You would, you would say all kinds of mean things about them. You would insult them, right? Because the, the greatest good was to be honored. We like to be honored. We want to feel appreciated, right? But in first century culture, those who were shamed are pushed to the outside. Those who are honored are brought to the middle, that's why, that's, why we, that's why we boo the opposing team when they run out of the tunnel. What are we doing? We're shaming them, right? We are saying, get off the field. You're no good. You shouldn't have even come in here. We're better than you. That's, that's what we're doing, right? Shame is also a very effective form of social pressure. We use shame to get people to line back up and do what they're supposed to do. To toe the line. Think about Boone May's brother-in-law. The story we read earlier. Trying to shame her. The other people in her village not speaking to her. Right? They want her to renounce her faith in Jesus. And go back to worshiping ancestors. They're using shame. Cancel culture is nothing new. That's just our name. For shaming someone into conformity. But that's not a new thing. Shame and honor is alive and well in 21st century America. And so Peter says, don't be ashamed. You have nothing to be ashamed of in following Jesus. It may cost you. It may cost you a promotion. It may cost you your business. It may cost you friends. You may not be where all the cool kids are. Peter says, don't be ashamed. Instead of being shamed into silence or compromise, Peter says, glorify God. That's the alternative. Don't be ashamed, but glorify God. Now, first, we need to ask the question, why am I suffering? Look at verse 15. He says, now... Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or even as a meddler. What's he doing? What's he saying? Basically, am I suffering because I'm doing something wrong? Like really doing something wrong? The first three words are understandable, right? Theft, theft and murder were crimes in first century Rome just like they're crimes in 21st century America. Right? Peter says, look, if that's why you're suffering, you deserve it. Don't, don't suffer as a criminal. The fourth word, though, that's interesting. That last word he uses, he says, let none of you suffer even as a meddler. It's a rare word. It's only, it only comes up once in the New Testament. Literally, you could break it down to someone who looks into someone else's business. A busybody, maybe what your translation says. 
Now, I find it fascinating that Peter puts murderer and busybody in the same group. He says, if you're, don't suffer as a meddler. Don't suffer as a busybody. Clean your own side of the street. Right? Don't worry about cleaning somebody else's side of the street if you can't clean your own. Okay? Peter's talking about what would bring hostility to the church, uh, undeserved hostility. He says, you, you don't have to tell everybody else how to live. Right? Now, there's, a, there's room for that within the community. Within the Christian community, there are expectations, there, is, there are instructions, there's a way we're supposed to live. But don't expect non-Christians to live like Christians. Don't be a meddler. But if you are suffering as a follower of Christ, he says in verse 16, then glorify God in that name. Because such suffering brings honor to God. And that's hard. That's not easy. If we will be saved, it will be with difficulty. So how do we persevere in that? How do we keep going? And this is where verse 19 comes in, where Peter tells us to commit all of life to God. He says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, according to God's will, this is the path God has for you. God has ordained this suffering. And again, it's easy to trust God when things are going well because clearly God knows what he's doing then. But will I trust his character and intent when the dark clouds gather? Will I trust his heart when things are not going well? In fact, even when I'm being pressured for following him. He says, if you suffer according to God's will, entrust your souls to a faithful creator. Entrust. It's the same word that Jesus uses as he's dying on the cross. In Luke chapter 23, Jesus actually quotes from Psalm 31. He says, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit, I entrust my spirit. At the moment of his most intense suffering, Jesus is right where he's supposed to be. Will we believe that? Jesus, in the moment, in the moment he, he's right. He's right. We, we talk about, I don't know if I'm in the center of God's will or not. You can't be outside of it. But Jesus is right where he's supposed to be, right where his father wants him. And he is facing intense suffering. And still he says, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. I'll trust you. Peter asks us to do the same. He says, trust the creator. Why does he say creator and not redeemer or something else or savior? Well, because as the creator, that means he has all authority over everything. So that means I can trust him. Nothing is outside of his control. He's the faithful creator. I can put my life in his hands. Karen Jobes, biblical scholar, she writes this. Neither human society nor human judgments can pass the final judgment on Christians. 
And so in the long run, those judgments are irrelevant. How do we commit our way to him? Peter says, by continuing to do good. Keep doing good. Now that's counterintuitive. Because doing good is what gets us in trouble in the first place. It's what got these people in trouble. Peter is saying, no, keep doing that. What's the the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing again and again and expecting a different result. You can imagine our first century brothers and sisters be like, uh... Pete, this got me in trouble last time. I would prefer not to keep doing this. And Peter says, keep doing it. That's how you entrust your soul to a faithful God. Persevere. Don't give up. So, what story are you living? What story are you in? And how are you living in that story? Do you have this hope of glory? If you're not sure, I invite you to trust in Jesus Christ this morning. Because this is the only story that there is. It's the only story that there's a good ending if you're in Christ. I want to close by praying some words uh, from a hymn written by Henry Light. Henry was an English pastor uh, in the 1830s. Let me pray. Jesus, I my cross have taken all to leave and follow thee. Destitute, despised, forsaken, thou from hence my all shall be. Perish every fond ambition, all I've sought or hoped or known. Yet, how rich is my condition. God and heaven are still my own. Let the world despise and leave me. They have left my Savior too. Human hearts and looks deceive me. Thou art not like them, untrue. Oh, while thou dost smile upon me, God of wisdom, love, and might, foes may hate and friends disown me. Show thy face and all is bright. Go then, earthly fame and treasure. Come disaster, scorn, and pain. In thy service, pain is pleasure. With thy favor, loss is gain. I have called thee Abba, Father. I have stayed my heart on thee. Storms may howl and clouds may gather. All must work for good. Me, Oh, Lord, that those truths would sink down deep into our hearts. That the sure hope of glory would enable us to persevere and rejoice in the present. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, this is actually... Uh, This actually helps us remember the story that we're a part of, right? We've heard the word preached, and now we have the opportunity to 